Hello, and welcome to the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement's podcast, Wonks at Work. I'm Craig Wilson, your host, a self-declared wonk, dad of two boys, native Arkansan, and I've been the health policy director at the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement for more than a decade. On this show, we aim to demystify, boil down, and unwonk, if you will, complex topics so that you can understand how the healthcare system is working or not working for you. Thanks for listening in today. On this episode, we are asking these two questions. Why is it so risky to have a baby in Arkansas? And what can be done to make it safer for moms and babies? I'll start with a shocking stat. Maternal mortality, that means the mom dies during pregnancy or shortly after, happens more often in the U.S. than in any other industrialized nation. Shocking, right? The maternal mortality rate is nearly twice that of the nation with the second highest rate. And in Arkansas, the state with the highest maternal mortality rate in the U.S., it's roughly twice that of the U.S. rate. And among black Arkansans, it's roughly double the statewide rate. Those are maternal mortality rates that you might see in third world countries. And it's unacceptable, even more so because it's largely preventable. And while death is certainly the worst thing that can happen during the birthing journey, there are many other risks along the way that can lead to bad outcomes. So, to help us understand some of the reasons for what we are seeing and what can be done to improve outcomes, we have Dr. Nirvana Manning, who is chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, or UAMS. She went to medical school and completed her residency training at UAMS, is board certified by the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and is a fellow of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists. Now, I know she is good at what she does because she was the physician that guided my wife and I with the births of both of our boys. Dr. Manning, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. All right. So before we get to the more serious stuff, I want to know what keeps you busy when you're not working. So what keeps me busy um, currently is my three children. So I have a junior in high school with all the things to prepare for college right now is about to drive us insane. Um, I have an eighth grader and a sixth grader. So we do many sports right now, of which volleyball is hitting really high on that total pole. So traveling a lot with the little girl these days. (laughs) All right. So... um, I know this question is tough for you, but I got to ask it. I ask it of everyone. What would you say is your theme song? So it's so funny. Um, This was definitely the hardest question. Um, And without comments, I say about the um, artist that sings this song, I will say Miley Cyrus, The Climb, has always resonated with regards to a lot of the lyrics for it. Um, It's been on a lot of my, like, running um, playlist. <laughs> and so I really, really like that song. I would not have tagged you as a Miley Cyrus fan, but I, I know you had a lot of input into that theme song from your family and friends. So there's always going to be another mountain. I'm always going to want to make it move. Always going to be an uphill battle. Sometimes I'm going to have to
That's a good one. It's a good one. All right, so um, let's get down to it. Why is it so risky to have a baby in Arkansas? So this is a really good question, and it has really been brought to light with the the most recent statistics that are so sobering Mm -hmm. with regards to Arkansas. And I wish this was as easy as it sounds. Um, But as we know, Arkansas is a very rural state. Um, And though we live in Little Rock, which has access to a lot of um, healthcare specialists, the large parts of our state are rural. And so access is a huge part of it. Pregnancy for women is a finite number of visits. And when they have to travel 30, 100 miles to get to one visit, when the average pregnancy is 13 visits, it's really hard for individuals to do that in the midst of everything. Not to mention, um, we had 39 delivering hospitals at the very beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Shortly into the pandemic, that fell to 37, and most recently, we lost two additional birthing hospitals, and so we're now down to 35. And so when you look at that geographically, we are now taking it even further Mm -hmm. out, so patients have even further to go. There is a healthcare provider shortage, um, and we can talk about that a little bit more. But many of these hospitals are also unprepared. Um, We need every one of these delivering hospitals to deliver, Mm -hmm. but many times they deliver anywhere between three and 500 a year. And for a comparison, UAMS is closer to about Mm 4,000 a year. So though their numbers are small, we need every one of those. However, when you deliver three and 500, some of these never events, some of these really catastrophic things may not happen very often. And so they're largely unprepared for what that looks like. We also have a very high incidence of a lot of the chronic health disease, Mm -hmm. chronic hypertension, diabetes, obesity, these all play into it. And so though you may be in a rural area, quite often these are really high risk people Mm -hmm. that may even need more frequent visits. And so we're playing against that. And so though we do have some technology with regards to telemedicine, it does not take the place in this situation with obstetrical care where we just need hands-on yeah. with these patients. So my family went through two emergency C-sections. So I, I know how traumatic you know that can be for not only for the mom, but, but for me as well. Absolutely. Um, and We recently at the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement released an analysis showing that while Arkansas is not very different than the rest of the U.S. when it comes to C-section rates for first births, there was quite the variation across the state. Why do you think that is? So I think that can be several fold. Um, And one, we take the transport calls from everywhere around the state. And so I get to hear firsthand some of these providers that do not have anesthesia coverage Mm. at night. They may not have the depth of coverage that we do in some of our bigger hospitals. And so if there is something questionable on a strip, and by that I mean like the fetal heart rate monitoring. Once the mom and baby get admitted to the hospital, we have some pretty standardized things that we do where we're monitoring them. And if that looks different, um, they may not have the luxury of being able to wait and sit Mm -hmm. what happens. So 
quite often they are forced to make decisions maybe earlier than we would otherwise. Um, I also think, I mean, there is there is provider variability. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I would also say that what we have seen, um, some of these comorbidities that we see in our state, as I mentioned, the chronic hypertension, the diabetes, have really... Um, there's a standardized time with which we think it's the safest to deliver. Mm-hmm. Quite often, that cervix may not be favorable at that time. And so an induction of labor is what is warranted, but that does increase the risk of a C-section. Mm-hmm. So it, it's several fold, um, and it's peeling back those layers in each of those areas to kind of figure that out. Right, right. So I, in terms of practice, because you talked about the chronic disease burden and the underlying access issues, but you, you also just mentioned the practice itself. So I know that you're involved in a quality collaborative that works with hospitals on improving delivery outcomes. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing with that? Sure. You know, most recently, Arkansas became an AIM state. Um, I think we were 47th or 48th of the states in the United States and, to do that. And AIM is? Alliance for Innovation and in Maternal Health. Okay. And so really what it means is we have adopted the California Collaborative Bundles of Healthcare. They started this, and basically what the idea is, is that there are bundles such that you don't have to kind of make decisions off the cuff. Mm-hmm. They are standardized. They are known and proven to be effective with some of these obstetrical emergencies, um, examples of which are hypertensive disease and pregnancy, postpartum hemorrhage, there's a sepsis bundle, there's a C-section bundle. And so it allows us to start earlier. It allows um, nurses or others to start kind of the um, the delivery of care even earlier than, than we could have otherwise because it's protocoled mm-hmm. and it's standardized. And so we have seen improvements all across the nation with regards to states that have adopted these bundles. And so the Alliance for Innovation and Maternal Health basically becoming that has developed this perinatal quality collaborative where we're now hospitals around our state have agreed to kind of adopt these bundles. And what we hope to see is improvements of outcome. Now, what this creates is kind of a toolbox. So as I spoke to you earlier, some of these are never events. And what we know about healthcare is that our staff is constantly turning over. And so how can you expect someone that's been there for two months to know about an obstetrical emergency that they may not ever There's have seen? There's a tool over right, here. Right. You could use it, but maybe it's, you don't know about yeah. it. Yeah. And so really what it creates, and for lack of a better word, it's a toolbox. You open this up and you don't have to have known about this. Mm -hmm. If you see a blood pressure with X, Y, and Z, you do X, and then you wait 15 minutes and you do it again. And so it really protocols that. How many hospitals are are in that collaborative? All All? but two hospitals. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's elective. You, it's not, um, you know, there's always the carrot or the stick, and this is just the carrot. Yeah. And so there's only two hospitals that have um, chosen not to be a part of this. And we are there to help. And we have groups that are going into these communities, whether it be into their labor and delivery units, into some of these emergency departments, doing simulations, hmm. teaching these toolkits, providing that kind of assistance so that they don't feel like they're on an island out there. 
That's good. You, you mentioned teaching, and I know that you have a practice, but you're also involved in the education and training of new doctors. So several questions here for you. First, is it your experience that obstetrics is still an attractive field for students? And has that education and training changed very much since you went through it? Goodness, yes. Um, so it is still a very attractive field, and I'm so thankful for that. Um, we have more and more students that want to do obstetrics and gynecology every year, and so we have the privilege of being able to really get um, the cream of the crop yeah. in our residency. We are the only residency in the state, and so um, I think after having graduated from our residency program, you are very well equipped on high-risk obstetrics. Mm. I mean, we we definitely see a lot of that. Um, so with regards to attractive, yes. Now, with some legislative changes, yeah. um, I think we draw a different group of um, residents that apply. Some of the people maybe from the Northeast, the changes that have been made are not necessarily something that they want to practice with. But I think within the South, we still are very, very attractive. M meaning just the policy environment yes. related to obstetrical care. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And then I think the second part of that was his education. Um, so yes, uh, you know, I finished residency <laughs> quite, quite a little <laughs> bit ago now. Um, not that long ago. I know, of course not. Um, the acuity of patients has huh. just changed. The chronic illness of patients has changed. I mean, it's amazing to me. Some of the things that we used to see were kind of one-offs when I was in residency. I mean, we certainly had some depth of chronic disease with hypertension, diabetes, obesity, but now we're hard-pressed not to see them. Mm. that. Um, we're hard-pressed not to see a high-risk patient. And if someone deems themselves as low-risk, we're questioning why we haven't picked something up yeah. that, that maybe we have missed. But um, just that chronic disease burden, I think, is just more evident. And I think, you know, COVID did not help that. It increased isolation. It increased poverty. It decreased access to health. So people that hit or become pregnant are now sicker. Yeah. Um, and so we're just kind of working against that. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that uh, there were a couple of hospitals that lost their uh, obstetrics providers, and they were in rural areas, right? How do we get these docs in those rural areas to, to go there first and to, to stay uh, to provide these needed services? I mean, I think this is a really good question um, because one that I get asked quite often. Every resident graduating class, I get calls from all around the community mm -hmm. Would anyone be interested in coming to us? And I think it's kind of a loaded question. Though a lot of these communities need obstetrical care, a lot of times they cannot support the gynecology. That is the second part mm -hmm. of obstetrics and gynecology. The laparoscopic surgery, the surgeries and the other side of things that they have spent half their time training for. Yeah. And so to put a brand new resident in some of these communities, they're going to lose some very valuable skills. So when I brainstorm and when I talk to leaders around the state, I really think what we need is to train up a lot of our family medicine. Mm -hmm. That's not as easy as it sounds. Um, there is a lot of family medicine providers that do mm -hmm. do some obstetrical care. 
it's what keeps you out at night. Yeah. It's um, got a huge element of liability. Mm-hmm. The reimbursement has not changed for a number of years mm-hmm. with regards to it. And so it's not super attractive yeah. for a lot of them. But I think if we can figure out ways to make that more attractive and train them up to practice within these bumpers Mm -hmm. and provide safe care and know that they have an escalation system should they get out of their realm of comfort, I think that's where we're going to make a difference. I also think using certified nurse midwives in a greater degree. You know, we have the largest group of certified nurse midwives at UAMS, and we've worked hard to collaborate and make this trusting kind of relationship. Um, And we've built that over time. And so I don't think by just placing a midwife in a community without having built that trust, that will come. But I do think there's so much of that that could come. Mm -hmm. They practice really good, safe obstetrical care, and they're underutilized in our state. Right now, the closest training program is Memphis. Mm -hmm. We don't have one here. And so they're hard to find. Um, so are there ways that we can collaborate with other schools? Are there ways that we could bring a program here and potentially start placing them in some communities strategically and start building those those relationships? Again, knowing that they will have a system with which they can escalate care. I think those are really solid options for the future. Good opportunities other than Mm -hmm. the traditional path. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like it's it's feasible. So I want to talk really quickly about something that I know that you're passionate about. You led efforts to bring girlology to Arkansas. Can you tell us what that is and why it's so important? No, absolutely. This is one of the most fun things I think I have done. (laughs) Um, And it started when my now junior was in fifth grade, um, and he came home from school and said, I guess they had a health class or something, and said, Mom, people are asking questions, but I don't know if they're, like, making this up or not. And so it was just puberty. It was plain puberty. Um, And so I did some research and realized that the education in our schools is really all over the place. Um, Some schools offer some education, some don't. Some don't even offer it to eighth and ninth grade, which I would argue that ship has sailed at that point. And so I was, you know, curious as to whether there was any national organizations that really looked at this. And I I happened upon girlology. And so the premise of this is a young girl ages eight to 13 about with a trusted caregiver. Now that can be a mom, an aunt, a grandmother, a father, a grandfather. But you come to this kind of seminar, it's two hours with this trusted individual, and we go through all things puberty. And so they come in ashen face. They are so mortified (laughs) that they are here. And by midway through, they are raising their hand and asking questions and so much braver than I was at this age. And it is so much fun to see it. And I really think girls, if they know more about their bodies, they can make better choices. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I think this offers is that trusting relationship with this caregiver. Mm -hmm. There's so much misinformation out there now. And, you know, kids are getting so much information from social media and TikTok and friends Mm -hmm. that may or may not be true. And so we really emphasize that this person next to you that cared enough to bring you is is your trusted source. So if you get some crazy information, talk to them before we 
Um, so we have gotten such great reviews, and so many people ask me about a boyology. Um, I was going to say the same thing because I got it coming. <laughs> I know, I know, and it is not my area of expertise, but I do have some individuals at UAMS that I think are going to work on a boyology oh, program. So more to come on that. Hopefully, it'll be here very soon <laughs> yeah. since I have a ten-year-old. Okay, oh, great. So um, I, I like to ask this because I do a little bit of teaching myself, and I know that there are people who you want to follow in your footsteps. So for up-and-comers who want to get there, what would be your advice? So I get asked this by medical students quite a bit, and I think if you want to go into medicine, pick an area of medicine that you can imagine doing even on your bad days. I love my day job. I love taking care of women. Um, I love doing surgery. I love my job, but my family also comes first above and beyond. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's real important to create that balance for yourself. And I think the days of old medicine where you take a job and it just stays the same throughout the course of your career is just gone. And I think it's important every three to five years in your career to stop, evaluate, and maybe pivot on certain things. And creating, for me as a chairman in, in at UAMS, creating an environment where people can pivot and be able to pivot back if they need to is really important. Mm -hmm. I also think it's really important to find mentors. And they may be off the beaten path, but people around you that can give you solid advice, people that you care about, that you will actually take their advice to heart. And sometimes it's hard advice, but I think one of the things early in my career that I think I didn't take advantage of enough is mentors. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would really recommend finding them as early as you can. And I, I have students in high school that will reach out to me even um, even now, and I love that. Um, and they may not go into medicine, but I think you learn a little something along the way yeah. every step. And so um, I love it. Well, that's great. We, there's going to be a great need for people to follow footsteps because we know we need a lot of OBGYN providers. So. Well, and I know too that the energy that you bring was always evident when you walked into the patient room with my wife and I. So that's very clear. I loved it. I love, yeah, I love what I do. My day job is very fun. Well, thank you so much for coming to my office this time and joining us on the podcast. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Walks at Work. You can listen to our bi-weekly podcast on our website, achi.net. As a reminder, the views, information, and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are solely those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The podcast does not constitute medical, legal, or other professional advice or services. We hope you've enjoyed our latest episode, and again, thanks for listening.